we even speak about this idea of food systems transformation. But, you know, I always say that's that's not a full sentence. You, you know what I mean? It's like to transform to what end? Welcome to Feed, a food system podcast presented by Table. I'm Samara Brock. And I'm Matthew Kessler. This week, we speak with Basiso Moyo, who called us from Johannesburg, South Africa. I consider myself an activist scholar who is very much invested in right to food struggles and, you know, food justice. My background is in civil society, but I'm also an academic. And I've recently just wrapped up my doctoral studies with the School of Public Health at the University of the Western Cape, all the way in Cape Town. Everyone has the right to have access to sufficient food is a sentence written in the South African Constitution. But how is that implemented? And who's responsible for making that a reality? Basiso Moyo grapples with what a right to food actually looks like in practice. Throughout our discussion, we cover various aspects of power, including agenda-setting power, power of corporations, the power of paradigms, the role of the state, and who has power along the value chain. As always, send us an email to podcasts at tabledebates.org if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future guests. And so as a short intro, can you describe how you developed your views on power in the food system? Yeah, well, I guess on the question of power, I mean, there's a historical context that informs where uh, South Africa finds itself so far as that interface with um, with the food system, right? Because South Africa's food and agricultural systems were established under apartheid to serve a minority. And what we are grappling with today is that these food systems have largely remained untransformed. And as a result of that, they continue to serve some kind of minority, whatever their race be you know, post-1994. So I think in, in terms of this this idea of power and making sense of, of that particular space and sphere, it's, it's about how do we bring about equitability, if that is a word, uh, in our food system in a way that government policies of liberalization and integration into the global uh, political economy of things are confronted in a way that, you know, is not necessarily regressive, but stays true to these bigger themes of redress and reform that largely impacts how, you know, people experience and come to understand how the food system serves them. So we're going to pick up on a lot of those different threads throughout this conversation, talking about history, talking about different ways to transform an untransformed system. And I'd like to first ask if you can explore the richness of the South African food system. The South African food system is bifurcated, so to speak. So we have a highly efficient, commercialized farming agriculture sector. And then we also have this uh, food system that is anchored in rurality and peasant farming. So there's that dichotomy that speaks to a two economies approach in the sense that there are those who experience the food system in South Africa in the same manner that someone in a first world country would experience the food system. And then there's those who experience the food system 
in a manner that someone in a war zone probably would have to interact with their food system. So so it's, it's about straddling that reality because, you know, we're speaking of a food system that functions in a context of the biggest inequality in the world. And, you know, you have to understand that the biggest injustice then expresses itself in the food value chain. We'll get into the food value chain later in the chat. Busisa refers to a two economies approach. The former South African president, Thabo Mbeki, coined this term in reference to post-apartheid South Africa. There's a rich economy and a poor economy. And growing the national economy at a fast rate would continue to improve the lives of those involved in the rich economy, but it wouldn't help the poor or address the root causes of poverty. The divide isn't entirely racialized, but there are racial elements to the division. We asked Basiso how he thinks about trade-offs between those two economies. He shared that it's not so simple to address them. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we, we're still speaking about complexity. You know, we're speaking about a complex system. You know, in as much as we speak of trade-offs, um, trade-offs towards what end? Because I often say, you know, we even speak about this idea of food systems transformation. But, you know, I always say that's that's not a full sentence. You, you know what I mean? It's like to transform to what end? And so with that in mind, I think for me, it's more about saying, look, we, we have a very efficient food system uh, in South Africa. However, it was designed to serve a minority. And today we are asking ourselves, right, you know, in a context of inequality, in a context of this particular history that we're still grappling with, what does the right to food mean? right? What does it entail? So when we're speaking of trade-offs, it's like what trade-offs are needed to bring about that commitment to this ethic, to this human rights ethic to say, we have a food system that is not delivering and what do we need to do in terms of advancing into that space where it becomes a nourishing food system for all? And I think that's my investment in this topic. And yeah, ultimately that conversation is not necessarily taking place in South Africa at the moment want to dig in a little bit more to how you conceptualize power. Can you define a little bit more about what power is and how it operates? Well, look, I mean, uh, power in the food system is, is very mystic, all right, because there's different types of power, right? And, and, and all too often when we speak about power in the food system, it's about discursive power. You know, it's about frames and ideas and the thinking and the agenda setting, you know, that type of power. And it's about who has influence there. And, and, and ultimately, I think for me, then it's about demystifying that. And, and part of it is to say, look, let's just look at things at face value because we don't want to be given to easy analysis. So you take a country like South Africa, which has this very strong human rights heritage, we look at constitutionalism and our socioeconomic jurisprudence, and then we say, okay, what is the track record there? And what are the potential leverage points that we can latch onto insofar as advancing this right to food story of ours? So you look at the, the sort of collective action efforts that have you know, brought about some type of dividends in terms of that constitutionalism, and, and you look at the country's legal opportunity structure. So you look at the fact that there's been 
worthwhile litigation efforts on, on, on other socioeconomic rights, like the right to housing, the right to education, the right to water, you name it, across the board. But when it comes to food, there seems to be this absence of any sort of genuine commitment to challenging the status quo. And part of the challenge is we don't know what relief we are looking for. Basuso talks about a lack of imagination in thinking about ways to deal with complexity. He opens up the conversation by asking, what vision would you share if you had the ear of the president? If I had to give you the audience of the first citizen, the president himself, what would you want to tell? So that is a challenge we're faced with in South Africa. But I think that's, that's part of the problem. And before we even get there, you, you then have to also ask yourself, what is the state's posture towards this issue? Right. So, so before we, we start lobbying, before we, we, we start the activism, you know, what do we assume the state's understanding of this issue is? Basisa points out that a lack of imagination is only part of the challenge. He also thinks about ways to navigate the inequality seen across the public-private split in South Africa. So we got public health there, private health care, public education, private education, public transport. It, there's this understanding that, you know, we, we, we have to toe the line. But when it comes to the food system, the understanding is that the food system is just left to its own modalities, you know what I mean, in a way that there does not seem to be any sort of impactful state intervention within that sort of like food value chain and, and how it is that the system is responding to this context of inequality. And I, and I think therein, you know, is an opportunity for a conversation. How do we ensure that the system does not fail the poorest amongst us, which is currently doing? You've spoken about the value chain. Can you talk about the different powerful actors that have more influence along it? There's a lot one can say on that topic. When we speak of the food value chain, right, there's, this, there's a profound difference of, of opinion in, uh, about how improved food security and livelihood outcomes will be best achieved, right? You know, the South African experience, we have this concentration of ownership in the food system whereby these corporations are able to put pressure on farmers to keep prices low, you know, and at the same time they pass on any increased costs onto consumers and, and so forth. And you find that the majority of workers, you know, within that food value chain, within these corporate value chains from the farm workers to the supermarket cashiers, they remain in very like precarious jobs with, with very low pay. So, what I'm saying is that we need to build consensus around the role that these big corporations play, because truth is they have a role to play. Basisa says that businesses and corporations have a role to play and can be a part of the solution, but he will consistently challenge them to commit to human rights principles. He's more concerned with the question, what does a public food system actually look like? That's all we are getting at here in South Africa to say, if in light of this dichotomy, in light of this inequality, in light of the fact that, you know, everything is bifurcated on this private public interface, all is well. Let's talk about the food system. What does a public food system looks like? And, and that's what we are talking about when we speak about this idea of a right to food. 
what is the promise of the right to food? So, so that we can go beyond saying, I have a right to food. No, let, let, let's be clear. What is the content of the right to food such that when I'm hungry, it's not a political statement. It, it's, it's tangible. I know that I can go here and I can get some type of relief. Let's talk about food banks. Let's talk about you know food kitchens. Not because we want to be a charity state, not because we want to burden the fiscus even more. No, but to say, how do we as society carry this burden? How do we ensure that as businesses, as academia, as government, as civil society, we come together under this commitment of the right to food? Ultimately, it's about then who has convening power. Right? Who has the power to convene? Does the government have that power? I don't know, because there's been many windows of opportunity where they could have convened and held the space for dialogue, and they've constantly chosen to play a blind eye. So once again, it's why do they choose that? Why are they you know, shying away just from dialogue at this stage? Who's in charge of this agenda setting? Who has the ear? of the state what is the statecraft that informs you know the state's posture to this particular issue can you talk a little bit about where you develop your ideas around right to food to food justice <laughs> wow um, I, I, I don't know i don't know i don't know <laughs> <laughs> look i mean, I mean look he, 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 here's the thing uh, i mean obviously there's um, you know one's own career trajectory and how i've been fortunate enough that my 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 sort of like grooming and development and training has been in tune with this uh, right to food story but I think ultimately, this for me as an African, and I think as someone from the global South, my investment in this right to food discourse is very simple. Oh, yes, <laughs> drawing back on this idea of an African perspective, you know, the poor will always be amongst us. At least that's what, you know, the Bible says. But beyond that, it's about from an African perspective, it's like we have the rich and we have the poor amongst us, but what we don't have is hungry people. So the idea of having hungry people is very foreign. You know, you can have rich, you can have poor, but no one should go hungry amongst us. And, and, and you know, being, being raised within that ethic, it, it, it became sort of like a natural passion project for me to be invested in right to food struggles. Initially, my sort of investment thematically was in more land and agrarian reform. And more and more, that then translated to, look, there's this issue of the right to food and there's something there. And over time, I think I have become more invested in just speaking to this idea of saying, look, what is the role of the state uh, as a principal duty bearer? Okay. Uh, so if I am hungry, whose problem is that? Am I meant to go to government and say, feed me? As things stand, I think uh, I'm more invested now in the real politic uh, that informs the space. Uh, having just concluded my, my studies, you know, looking at the politics of malnutrition, I think um, I'm more inclined to say that uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think malnutrition in particular is a clinical condition. I think it's a political outcome. 
you know, and, and, and part of my investment now in the space is to try to find spaces or to take up space in a way that amplifies that more and more. The right to food can be a fairly abstract idea. Can you bring it down to the ground for us? What does it look like in practice in the context that you have been researching? And in particular, how does it shift power in, in those areas? Yeah, that's, that's, that's part of the joy, I guess, of my scholarship is that these are questions that I'm also still grappling with. The promise of the right to food is about an understanding that beyond anything else, this is about a service to humanity. You know, I don't want to sound a bit uh, philosophical and a bit too abstract, but what we are talking about is just need all of us to acknowledge the seriousness of the problem and the need for systemic change. Part of why we are leaning on the right to food, at least I am, is that in South Africa in particular, what you find is that there's this rhetoric that says South Africa is food secure at the national level. And, and for me, it's like that's, that is meaningless because when we're talking about the right to food, we're talking about people and it's about people that need to eat. Basisa says there's a great opportunity created by the framework of the right to food. It's a way to demand systemic change and invite a large group of stakeholders into the conversation. How do we bring about equity, you know, in a way that speaks to this right to food, to this commitment and this ethic that ultimately we are feeding people? The food system must be responsive to the politics of place. It must be responsive to the climate, you know what I mean? If, 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 if we are vulnerable to climatic uh, conditions and factors, surely, you know what I mean, we, we, we need to stay in tune with this broader commitment to people. I want to bring us back to discursive power, as you mentioned earlier. And I'm curious if you could share what are the paradigms that shape how we make sense of the food system and how those understandings define or even limit how people in power think about problems and solutions? Paradigms, right? So now we're talking about, well, I guess I could even call it policy paradigms. And I think it's very worthwhile to understand that there's a particular knowledge production agenda, uh, so to speak, that seeks to capture or problematize the situation. And it's also a contested arena. And with that said, Paradigms we're speaking about, there's a food justice constituency and ethic to this discussion that is largely rooted, you know, within uh, a North American discourse that revolves around race relations and race, race concerns and how that impacts in terms of the functioning and the modalities of the food system. So drawing back to your question about the paradigm, so that's where we find ourselves, is that there's this idea of a food justice ethic that is very racialized, and it's something that is more dominant in the global north. And then there's this idea of food security, which has been the most dominant uh, insofar as the history of this issue and where we find ourselves in this moment in time. However, in light of some of the frustrations that have to do with the real politic of food systems transformations, many activists and many, you know, activist scholars are now of the opinion that, you know, food security as a concept 
has become something of diminishing value for justice projects. If you'd like to read more about these terms, or as Basiso puts it, policy paradigms, you can check out Tables Explainers. What is food security and what is food sovereignty? Of all these various food system paradigms, Basiso feels that the right to food has the most capacity to broaden our thinking about food system reform. Food sovereignty still has its own limitations in that, you know, beyond you know, the appeal that comes with this, with this militancy and its commitment to, to radical reform and stuff, there's not much it offers beyond that political imagination and the political statement that it, 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 it amplifies and articulates so well for reform and transformation, but it does not then once again speak, speak to this idea of alternatives and and how best we can arrive at that. So those are the dominant paradigms that I then think inform our understanding that we put on as we as we make sense of this. However, in an attempt not to be caught up in these silos and these sort of paradigms and ways of thinking, the right to food then enables us to then have this broader commitment to a human rights-based framework, and it becomes an umbrella of all these terms. So regardless of whether your motivations are race or you want reform or you want to confront super-predatory capitalism in the food system, whatever it is, let's bring all of these under this banner of right to food. Let's hold the space and let's speak about what a right to food agenda can look like that permeates because we know that this food issue is multi-pronged. And where does Basiso see decolonization sit amongst these paradigms? Yeah, there's a lot to say, you know, around a decolonial agenda. And I think perhaps, you, you know, at face value, I think for me it's about what is Africa's food history? Where are we coming from? Where are we finding ourselves now? And what needs to change? The, the food system in particular is not broken. So even when we speak about uh, decolonizing the food system, we, the food system functions as intended to, and that is the reality of it. So part of that is me being sympathetic to the fact that there is no such thing as a decolonial agenda to food systems. However, we could pay attention to some of the injustices that are taking flight slowly but surely, such as issues around land grabs, seed patents, and a little bit zoning in on this multinational corporation footprint. But all of this is as a result of the fact that the food system or the African food system is pretty much disadvantaged in that it's up for grabs and we find ourselves at a space where I do not even know if we can speak boldly about a decolonial agenda to to African food systems. I think that becomes a question of taking on the empire and and that that is a whole nother conversation of its own. Yeah. Thanks so much. You've you've covered a lot of territory. And I just have one last question for you. So I just read your co-authored article about using Afrofuturism in high-level visioning processes like the IPCC as a way to reimagine the Anthropocene. For those unfamiliar, Afrofuturism is any style of art, books, music, comics, that combines science fiction elements with ideas from the history of Africa and the African people. 
It's steeped in African traditions and Black identity to tell stories about an imagined future. How can Afrofuturism expand our imaginations of the future food system? Well, I like that question because something that I'm grappling with is what does the right to food mean for the Anthropocene? Because more than that, it's about regardless of what food future we imagine, it will still be underpinned by some type of social contract. And for me, I think that is the lens that is currently missing in terms of um, you know, futurism and Afrofuturism studies and more so the Anthropocene. To so say more and more, we are in tune that you know, the future is on its way and we're anticipating it. More and more, we are talking about the fact that, you know, human activity has the biggest footprint now. But beyond that, we are still not talking about that gray matter in between, you know, because we want to treat this, this futurism rhetoric as though it's black and white. It's not. It's about how do we still arrive at that place where the social compact speaks to the, the real politics of the day you know, whatever that may be, because history has not finished. And part of this, yeah, the storytelling is that we, we lack an imagination for justice once again. So, so we want to speak of this utopian society. There's a roadmap that can get us there. And let's be true and honest. And let's, let's, let's embrace the discomfort as well that comes with it. And I think that's what's currently missing. So for me, it's about what does the right to food entail? The human rights lingo, human rights framework. And this also, you know, speaks to third world approaches to international law because we still have a lot of grievances at this end of the world. And now we're talking of futurism. And I'm saying let's talk about a true and genuine justice ethic that will get us there because at the end of the day, we are all then just sort of like engaged in some sort of wishful thinking outside of that. Bissisamoyo, scholar activist, <laughs> thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks again for the opportunity, folks. I really appreciate it. That wraps up another episode of The Feed Podcast. A big thank you to Bissisamoyo for joining us and to you for listening. The best way to support the show is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. To share your favorite episodes with your friends and colleagues. You can stay up to date with all of Table's activities and get the latest news about food system sustainability by subscribing to our newsletter, Fodder, found on our website, tabledebates.org. Table's collaboration between the University of Oxford, Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences, and Wageningen University. This episode was edited and mixed by Matthew Kessler and Jackie Turner. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Stay tuned for a new episode on power in a couple weeks. So I, I got a confession to make. You know, I've never listened to a podcast before. This is like, you know, my first, first like I'm learning and I'm doing this thing. <laughs>